Welcome everyone to Monday Match Analysis. I'm Gil Gross. Today's episode is a conversation with Hall of Fame tennis writer Steve Flink. Part one was released yesterday where Steve and I discussed at length the Nadal Medvedev final at the 2022 Australian Open. This is part two where we discuss everything else that occurred over the fortnight and before the uh, the Australian Open began from Stefano Tsitsipas to Alexander Zverev, Matteo Berrettini, Felix Auger-Aliassime, Carlos Alcaraz, all um, being discussed in this one as well as the Novak Djokovic saga with him um, trying to enter Australia prior to the tournament. Discussion on all that in part two of my conversation with the great Steve Flink. Without further ado, here it is. Let's move on from the final. Um, it was great going through those things with you, Steve. And uh, let's start to, to someone who I expected to be in the final. And it sounds like you expected him to at least get through the quarter, and that's Alexander Zverev. Another very, very bizarre performance from him, and I'd love your thoughts on this because after, you know, the stretch from winning the Olympics until this Australian Open, I don't think we'd seen a, a really puzzling performance where the serve isn't good and the forehand isn't good, which are, are traditionally Zverev's big weaknesses. But, I, I mean, was this was this performance as as surprising and and disappointing to you as it was to me uh, against uh, Denis Shapovalov? Totally, totally. I mean, I was convinced that he was going to play Rafa. Frankly, I was convinced he was going to beat him, and uh, we never had a chance to find out. But above all, I wanted to see the match. I just thought it would be mm -hmm. fascinating for him to get out there and play Rafa at this time. Yes, look. The period you described was spectacular what he did between winning the Olympics over beating Novak in the semis, you know, winning in, in, in Cincinnati and and then uh, going to the open, losing a heartbreaker to Djokovic in five. And then and then, you know, closing the year out with winning the year end championships, beating both Djokovic and Medvedev back to back. What more could you ask him? OK, granted, it's best of three. It's different. But, you know, he'd had a good, solid showing at the U.S. Open. You thought to yourself, OK, I, th I really thought coming into the tournament, he had a great chance to win the tournament based on all on just what you were saying there. The great record he had post Wimbledon last year. Uh, it was a, it was a completely perplexing performance for me. I, what I saw of him against Shabavalov. Only once did he seem to come alive. Second set to go up five three, having been down a break early, mm -hmm. and he just threw it away on his serve with one of the worst games he could possibly have played at a propitious moment. Just a terrible game. Couple of double faults, couple of errors. Didn't make Dennis do much, and then Dennis ends up running away with the match in straight sets. Now I don't want to downgrade uh, Shapovalov. He's, he's going to be a great player, but at this stage, in a, in a major, I mean, at this stage, Sasha's got to do better than that, and. He seemed to have paved the way to put himself in a position to really go after this title. And, and uh, I, I thought that was a very disappointing performance from him, extremely. Yeah, and, and it would be different if, if Shapovalov beat him in a good match and they both played well, but it just, it wasn't that. It was, it was one-sided and, and Zverev just not even close to, to doing what he can do in a major where he has yet to really you know, he's made great, he's made runs at majors, don't get me wrong, but he hasn't really beaten great players at majors yet, which is, which is insane. At this stage in his career, he's accomplished so much in best of three. 
and those big wins in best of five, they they just have uh, uh, evaded him, which is no, I, inexplicable, right. right? Totally inexplicable. I mean, the guy's won the year-end championships twice now, and he beat Djokovic to win the first time, and and to beat him again the second time, along with Medvedev, and he's done this in the one thousands. It doesn't seem to matter to him who he's playing. His game seems to match up just fine against everybody. Maybe the toughest one is Medvedev. Granted. He's had a, had a long, tough run against Medvedev before beating him in the finals of the year end, lost him in the round robin. But that's the only one I, that he seems to doubt himself against. Otherwise, he's very comfortable playing all of them. You can't win those titles without being a great player. So the, the natural uh, next move, the next step you would have thought, it, you know, is to win one of these. He's been in the 2020 U.S. Open final. They let get away against team from two sets to love and serving for the match in the fifth. And that semi, the French last year against Sitsipas, down two sets and gets it into a fifth and, and loses there. And tough five set with Novak at the open. You would have thought coming off all of those performances in 20 and 21 that this might have been his time. That, that And he seemed confident going in. But then after the loss, Gil, what's his comment? Oh, I didn't. I really wasn't playing well the whole tournament. Didn't play well today. Haven't been playing. And it's like, well, why don't you, you know, with all due respect, why don't you do something about it? I mean, you're, you, you, you. You seem very prideful. You seem to believe you're as good as anybody out there. Remember after mm -hmm. the, after he lost to Novak at the open, he came in the press conference. I was there that night and he said, look, you know, and he talked about the match and he, he was very laudatory toward Djokovic. And he said, look, Novak and I are the best players in the world. It's that simple. We're playing better than anybody else. And, and you, you sense that he believed that was it. You know, maybe Novak had the numbers and the titles, but, but that he was right up there with Novak and nobody else was better. That's how he, was looking at life, but now he has to kind of look himself in the mirror again and say, what went wrong? How could I put, and you're right. The key point is if he loses seven, five in the fifth to Dennis in a really high quality encounter, and maybe we wouldn't be talking this way, but that was mm -hmm. lackluster straight sets. And the one chance he had in five, three in the second, he threw it away. Yeah. Uh, I thought his, uh, his peer, Stefano Tsitsipas, who, who is certainly someone who he's competed with and been compared to a lot, uh, he had a good event and, and a good result, especially with the, the elbow surgery and at times not knowing if he was going to play the tournament. But uh, I think Tsitsipas looked great, and, and given how comfortable he is on clay, um, the, the positive is that he's probably going to be a contender in the next couple months, even at Indian Wells and in Miami, slow hard courts, and then on to clay season. Uh, how impressed were you with, with Tsitsipas at this Australian open? Very, very. I think you and I are thinking a lot alike today. I mean, coming into the tournament, I'll be honest. I didn't think he was going to do anything. I worried about mm -hmm. his arm elbow arm injury that he's been, this bothered him so much late last year. And, I, I was very concerned and he didn't look terribly good in the early rounds. He had the five set with Taylor Fritz and, you know, it was a tough run, but then suddenly he obliterated center, which really impressed me. And, and then played quite well for three sets against Medvedev. And, and if he would have won the first set where he had four, one lead in the tie break, who's to know, maybe he would have won that match. So yes, I agree. That was an uplifting fortnight for Sitsipas to be sure. And I think now he, We'll see him get back into playing the type of high-level tennis we saw from him so much, of, you know, especially in the first half of last year where he beat Nadal at the Australian from two sets down to make the semis and came so close to winning the French where he 
And think about that. At the French last year, that's why I'm encouraged about him in the French this year. He beats Medvedev in the quarters, Zarev in the semis, and has Djokovic down two sets in the finals. So, you know, that could have been a spectacular one, two, three from him that he didn't, couldn't quite pull it off. But yes, to get back to your point, yes, I'm very encouraged for him coming out of this tournament. I'm glad to see it, by the way, because I think he's an enormously appealing player when he's, when he's at the top of his game. I agree. And you've, you've covered this sport for a long time, so you've seen so many uh, parent-kid coaching relationships. I got to say, with some of the things that Pass has dealt with technically, with the backhand return and the backhand slice in particular, just being weaknesses and not seemingly getting better, that plus the, the coaching and some of the drama, the public drama that we've seen, I do think that there's scrutiny building about the Apostolos and Stephanos relationship. And uh, I, I want to know where do you stand on, on those sorts of relationships in general? And I know they've worked in the past and they haven't worked in the past, but also on this one in particular. Well, I think there's going to come a certain point where he's going to want to change the dynamic. I hope so, because as, I think it's all well-intentioned. I think his father loves him deeply and vice versa. But it's causing him so much trouble when, when you see players erupting, as Zarev did last summer, acute, making the accusation about texting from the locker room when Stefanos left the court playing him. And now it happens again here with Medvedev. And it's, it could ha it, it's just been a constant issue for him. And yes, he tries to deflect it by saying, well, come on, there's coaching going on everywhere. Okay, that, that's true. And I heard Billie Jean King say that in a podcast with, Pat, with uh, Patrick McEnroe. You know, she wants to just see coaching legalized because it, it's so widespread. That's true. And Sitsabas can has a right to feel that way, that others are doing it too. But his father, it's just too visible. And it causes him too much trouble. So I'm hoping at some point he'll change, they'll, they'll figure out a different way here where Stefanos is, they bring in a prominent coach like a Darren Cahill and the father takes a much more backseat role. And, and it's clear that it's a backseat role. And, and whatever he says to his son, it's more behind the scenes because I just feel like he's been a hindrance to Stephanos without meaning to be, which is a shame. And the problem is not going to go away if he keeps talking during matches like that and leaving himself open and getting, getting one. And, and his son is getting warnings and mm -hmm. trying to laugh it off, but it's not so funny anymore. Stephanos was laughing it off in Australia. It's not funny. It's, it, it's clearly a detriment to him. So I hope he resolves this. And I say this with all respect to his father, who I know this, his, he's like any other tennis parent who wants the best for his son. But at a, at a certain point, you've got to recognize when you have become the problem. I agree. I mean, it's just, it's hard to imagine if Stefanos did bring in someone else and, you know, one of the top minds in the game, I'm sure people would be so enthusiastic to, to be in his corner and work with the skill set that he has. It's hard to see that not helping Stefanos. So uh, I also hope he, he ends up making that change. Let's uh, let's hit the other semifinalist on the men's side, Matteo Berrettini. And uh, he's been a player that that I've had great respect for, for a long time. And I've predicted him to finish in the top 10 once again, which he's done already a couple times in, in his young career. He, he has great consistency. He has a great mental game. He has a serve. He has a forehand. 
but against the top players, I'm struggling to see where that development is going to lead, where he's beating the elite returners who are really, you know, just beating him down in baseline rallies. And I'm wondering, you know, would you convince me otherwise, or, or are you kind of with me that Matteo Berrettini is, might be a little bit of a gatekeeper where he could take an opportunity and, and win a really big title, but he's always going to be a very heavy underdog against your Nadal's Djokovic, Zverev, Medvedev's of the world. No, I, I see it largely the way you do. I mean, and there's times when I feel like he's improved his backhand. I must say it, it was at its worst for most of that match against Nadal. Now, granted, who's better, who's better able to exploit it than a, this great left-handed dynamo from Spain who's going to pepper away at that side with his heavy topspin and make you miserable. On the other hand, he wasn't moving well on that side for two sets, and obviously he didn't crack his forehand the way he should have either. No, mm -hmm. I worry for the same reasons you do. They're going to the, the, the other top players are going to get to the backhand. It's always going to be a liability. They, they, there are times when he's going to when his serve and forehand are going to carry him through, but the best returners are going are gonna to come up, as Rafa did, with the returns when they need him at the vital times, as Rafa did to get that break at the end of the fourth set. So, yes, I think he's the kind of guy that can probably hang around between five and seven in the world for quite a, long, quite a good stretch ahead here over the next three years. But whether we're going to see anything better than the Wimbledon final that we got from him last year, I have my doubt. I, I may be even a bit more skeptical than, than you about him even stealing one major along the line. Semis, yes. Occasional final, maybe. But I think he may get stuck largely in kind of a quarterfinal, semifinal syndrome. Yeah, I could see that as well. I, I could. Uh, it's just about timing and, and the right things shaking out for him. But, but um, yeah, I, I think we kind of see him in, in the same light then. And by uh, the way, just a quick point. I like him. I don't know how you feel. He's, I me find too. Him, he's charismatic. He's, he's amusing. He's He's, he's appealing to the galleries. His tennis is exciting when he's really flowing, but I, I just, I just think there's going to be, there, there's some real roadblocks here and it's going to be hard to get around it. And he's tried hard. I admire his professionalism and look professionalism and look what he did in this tournament to hold back Alcaraz, uh, you know, who came back at him so fiercely after losing the first two sets. And here's this young kid with all this confidence and all this talent and, and, and Mateo not, uh, fends him off in the fifth set tiebreak. And then same with Monfils, who's charging back at him the same way from two sets down into a fifth, and he puts him away. So I, I, I have nothing but admiration for him as a, as a competitor, but I think that the skills may be just a bit too limited. Those are great wins. Uh, I had Alcaraz beating him. I, I expected Alcaraz to, to win that match. I've been very impressed with Carlos's return in particular, among many other things, but I thought that would be enough to to get him through the line in that match. It was not, I thought Berrettini had a mental edge, the experienced player there, just handling the moment a lot better than Carlos. But uh, I, I would like to ask you about Carlos Alcaraz because for me, he's the best young player I've seen since Novak Djokovic. And uh, I'm wondering if, if you're willing to, to go that far as well. Hadn't thought about it till you brought it up, but I, I'm, I'm going to have a hard time coming up with a substitute. Uh, no, I was sold on him at the U.S. Open, watching the Tsitsipas win and, and the way he carried himself. And frankly, I thought this was a great effort. Berrettini was destroying him. I mean, he could have been gone in straight sets very, very easily, and he pushed it right down to the wire. 
And I don't think it discourages him in the least. I think he's unshakable that way. No, I'm very encouraged in terms of just, just the, the amount of talent that he's got and the, the talent and the temperament combined is, is it's hard. It's just irresistible. And, and he obviously believes it. he has the rap. You compared him to Novak, but I, I see the temperament is, reminds me more of Rafa. Yeah, uh, I, I, I agree with that. It's just and, Novak just, being the last prospect that I can remember. Oh, that yeah. was. Oh no, that comparison is perfect. I just mean, looking at him and his personality and his temperament does remind me of Rafa. Like I belong here. Watch out because you're not going to be able to stop me. And I hope you're going to like me as I make my rise, but I'm on my way to the top. That's the attitude I get from him. And I think the crowds everywhere on, uh, on the globe are going to be, find him very compelling. And I, I still, I still see this doesn't deter him in the least. I think he's going to have a spectacular season in 2022. I agree. And, and while we're on the topic of, of praising some of the younger players, this one, not quite as young, but I've really taken notice to Felix Ojeali-Assim at the beginning of, of 2022, from what he did at the ATP Cup to what he did at the Aussie, starting to really handle the nerves a lot better than he did early in his career. Now, he still needs to win a title. I, I think that's going to happen. But uh, I see tons of, of new things in his game that that have me very impressed and of course it's now uncle tony working with him for a bit over six months yeah uh, I, I, I let me make a comment that i want to hear a little more from you about what impresses you but here's what okay. i'll say he beats he beats zareb who granted had one of those 20 double fault days at wimbledon last year it was still a great win loses to berrettini goes to the open get gets to the semis and and loses to medvedev uh, and didn't, you know, didn't really give a great account of himself, should have won a set and didn't, didn't get it. And then he comes to Australia and right before he plays uh, in the ATP cup, he got killed by Medvedev. Yeah. And to then come out of that, having had two shellackings from Daniel in the recent, in the recent months like that, and nearly beat him and have this match point, which you can't blame him for. It's a great serve from Medvedev at four or five in the fourth match point down. And he bails himself out. Felix didn't. And then even in the fifth set of that match, Felix, who had, of course, had led two sets to love, didn't give up on himself. And he had six break points in the fifth set, twice had Medvedev at 1540 and lost at 6-4. But I love the way he competed. And I also was really impressed with some of the returning. There were mm -hmm. times that Dan was hitting good first serves and certainly some decent seconds. And he suddenly found himself on the stretch. These returns were coming back fast. They were deep. They had Daniel having to defend in a way that Daniel was not terribly comfortable doing. He didn't expect to have to do it in that situation. And then you just look at the overall, just his overall ability. He's very comfortable at the net. He's got a beautiful service motion. It's all there. And I think Uncle Tony is rubbing off on him in terms of his match playing mentality. So I'm very, very encouraged. And this, this thing about not winning a tournament, that's, 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 uh, that's not going to plague him. He's going to get over that. And once he starts winning tournaments, He'll win a bundle of them. Well, he's made an incredible amount of finals at, I think he's 22 yeah. at this point and he's made eight, yeah. which yeah. is pretty unbelievable. Yeah. So is that, what do you like about him? So the big change that I've seen is he's always been a great athlete, but he's never really used it uh, to the, to the extent that he can, because he's been a, a hyper aggressive player kind of needed to control play all the time. So he wasn't patient and disciplined in his shot selection. 
And his court position wasn't dynamic in the sense that he was, uh, he wasn't ready to come forward, but he also wasn't ready to move back. And, and that's one thing I'm seeing to him, from him is recognizing, okay, I've dropped the ball short in the court, or I've just hit a return that is a little bit short in the court. Let me seed some court position to maximize my court coverage. And I don't mind if I defend now for a couple balls here to try to dig out of this point and get in better position. It used to be just really very kind of one dimensional intention and court position in all of his shot selection and the way he constructed points. And now I'm seeing a full array of, of defense, neutral offense, different positions on the court. And I think that's been the big change for him. Yeah, well said. I mean, look, he, 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 he was a, a, a tad impatient and somewhat impetuous at times. And, and he did want to just do it all in his own terms with aggression. And there, and there was a lack of discipline. But this is where I mean about Uncle Tony and the match playing mentality, because I think that's probably what he's been working on the most is, is situational tennis. What, what are you going to do at, at, at this moment? You know, what, what, and understanding that, that that makes all the difference. And, and, and against uh, Medvedev there, you, you can, I, I don't think he lost that match. Medvedev won it. And so right. I, think, and I think he came away extremely encouraged about his prospects, you know, having got, made such progress against Daniel. And you feel like now he probably can threaten all of the top players. I agree. And uh, he'll be, he's been very comfortable on the grass. So he's, he's definitely someone to watch come, come Wimbledon time. If we're working backwards, Steve, let's, let's end on, on how this tournament began or before a single ball was hit with Novak Djokovic. And uh, certainly the saga is so detailed and layered and so, so many things went down that we're not going to be able to litigate everything that happened or go through everything that happened. Uh, But but what are what are your big picture um, feelings uh, on this? And I just want to kind of give you the floor to start, and then maybe we can dive into to some specifics on it. Uh, but first, I just want to give you the floor. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I I'm very saddened by the whole episode. It, it starts with obviously Novak having these deep seated feelings about vaccines and how he doesn't want to put it into his body. I think he's been misconstrued. People thinking that this is sort of an an ego, an ego thing that he felt like, you know, that he wanted the exemption because he's Novak Djokovic and give me my exemption. I never felt that it was coming a question of ego. I think it was, it's a stubborn streak about the vaccine. And unfortunately, I think he's been listening to the wrong people. So somehow he's convinced himself that this is going to be dangerous for him. I wish he would go back to the feeling that he had when he did his elbow procedure back in 18. And he talked, he's talked many, you've heard him. He mm-hmm. said it's, about how he was in tears. He didn't really want to do that. But why did he do it? He did it for the sake of, of his being able to play top of the line tennis again for years to come, which he would not have been able to do without the procedure. I wish he would look at this in the same vein and say, I don't like it. I'm still not convinced that it's the right thing, but I've got to do it or I'm never going to, I'm going to be in real trouble here. Now that's part of it. Second quick, quick point I'd like to make is and and he clearly made some mistakes along the way with the forms and there's some question about the dates of when he had COVID, but put all that aside. He applied for an exemption. Tennis Australia said, you've got it. You are permitted into this tournament. That was Craig Tiley. And that was after two panels, two expert panels reviewed his application 
supposedly blindly, by the way, and determined that he met the requirements to get the exemption. So I think that the, the most infuriating and, and confusing part of the whole episode to me is what went wrong between the Victorian government and Tennis Australia and the federal government, because once he landed, it was nothing but trouble and it turned into a big court case. We know how, how it went back and forth and how he went to the detention hotel and then the first judge let him off and then the minister spoke up again. It's not even worth going through all that again, but it turned into about a 10 day episode Mm-hmm. And he was made to look bad. He was made to look part of what reason he was made to look bad was that it, it appeared almost as if he was barging into the country. Who does he think he is? You know, we're, we get vaccinated here and he should, too. I understand Australians feeling that way about the vaccine, but he went through the proper channels, which was tennis Australia. He didn't just get on a plane and go over there. And the mystery to me is. What what went wrong there and why has Craig Tiley not said one word about their part in this? Because they played a significant role. Now, you notice, Gil, I'm sure that when the tournament was over, both Rafa and Medvedev were very laudatory to to Tiley. And I understand that. I think the players like him. I think they all like him. And I'm sure he's a good guy. But this was a mess. And suppose that that Djokovic had just been told up front by Craig Tiley, having spoken to the federal government, they're telling us that this is going to be trouble, Novak. I don't think they're going to let you in. I'm advising you not to come because this could turn into a terrible ordeal for all of us. And there's no telling what the courts are going to do, but I I don't like your chances based on what I'm hearing. Obviously, that was not done. So I think I really felt like that part of not enough emphasis was put on that because if Djokovic is just told up front, sorry, Novak, without the vaccine, forget it. And he never gets on the plane. People would have just said, oh, why does he, why is he so stubborn about the vaccine? But it wouldn't have been anything like the monumental story that it became where he began to look like some kind of a spoiled brat who, who essentially was just saying, look, I'm a superstar and you got to let me in. And I won this tournament nine times and I wanted a 10th time and leave me alone and just give me a break. That's not really what he was doing. Uh, uh, so I, I, we'll have to see what happens going forward, though. I just I, I hope he'll change his mind going forward. Tell me your thoughts. Yeah, there were there were so many mistakes made in this situation. It should never have gotten to the point where it got to the the two fair scenarios would have been. Either Novak was told you cannot enter Australia without right. Right. without being vaccinated or a, an acute medical condition, and and that you know prior infection is not a is not a reasonable exemption. He should have either been told that, and I I do believe, and he will I'm sure be asked this at his next press conference. I I believe he was prepared to skip the Australian Open. Yeah. Either he should have been told that, or or he should have been told, okay, you, you have an exemption and everything should have gone from there. Like it did for Renata Voracheva, the Czech doubles player, like it did for the, the linesman or, or lineswoman who, who was let in on that same exemption. Those are the two fair scenarios. What happened ended up being unfair. And at the same time, yeah, with, with some digging, it uncovered um, unfavorable behavior or poor behavior by Novak Djokovic after receiving the positive in Serbia. Um, so, you know, at the end of the day. And by the way, Gil, that, yeah. that, that from him, he's the one who told that. Yeah. Granted, he made himself look bad. He, he exposed his, his 
himself that way in the sense of having to admit that he had mishandled the situation with the Serbian, uh, with the with the French reporter from the key. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But you just touched on something crucial, Borakova, the, the other examples. Now, here's the here she is. She's over there. She's playing a tournament. They came after her after Novak landed in the country. It was almost as if the government was saying, oh, we're going to look bad. People are going to be talking about this. And we're telling Djokovic he can't come in. We let her in. We sh- Maybe we shouldn't have done that. Well, why did they do it? Why were there these other cases? Nobody has really focused enough on that ease. And then she ended up being upset with Tennis Australia mm-hmm. and saying she was going to come after them for some money, not an exorbitant amount, but but she'd lost some money on this and yep. went home. But you just wonder what was the thinking there? Uh, you know, if this was a question of a superstar being given preferential treatment, supposedly initially, but have to go over there expecting an exemption, but she'd gotten one. And as you said, there was the lines with them. There were other examples. So why were there these inconsistencies and why did they yank her out having let her in? Well, I think it it started as something that I think should have been completely rules based and it turned into something that was political. And and I I think that's difficult to argue with. And I would love to to say it it remained rules based. But when you look at the arguments that were were put forward in the last trial, they were not rules-based arguments. They were, uh, you know, it was it was the effects of anti-vaccine sentiment and uh, in in the country and the effects that allowing Novak Djokovic to enter the country might have on the perception and I guess yeah the the movement the anti-vaccine movement was kind of what was uh, of concern according to, to those arguments. So yeah, I think it. I think it did become a a political thing, unfortunately. And Steve, you know, I think the best way to kind of sum this up as far as the the Australian government goes is I'm still unclear on if I were unvaccinated, um, if I would be allowed in Australia as as a journalist. Say I was unvaccinated and I had just tested positive. I'm still so unclear on what the rules are there. I'm not sure if I would be allowed in or not. Yeah, absolutely. And that needs some clearing up. But to take it from where we are now, and I thought it was just just a very, it was, you know, it was such a, the fluctuations and and it appeared that he was going to be led in the tournament. And then they had everybody speaking out and talking about how tired they were. But of course, nobody wanted to really see it from his standpoint. I mean, the last thing he could have expected landing in Australia was this, this, whole thing to blow up the way it did and to turn into such a a long episode and and obviously had he been let in Gil I, I don't think he would have I don't I think if, if finally he'd won the second case this and you know and come out of it the day before he'd already had these big disruptions in his in, in just trying to get ready I don't think he could have yeah. done him justice but the big question to me going forward is will he change his mind because it's clear that this vaccine issue is gonna still be there the remaining majors this year. It's almost certain that they'll all require the vaccine. Uh, I, I suspect, I don't think there'll be any loopholes, in which case he's gotta decide, you know, does, is he willing to, for, for the, is he willing to sacrifice the remaining three majors because he believes so strongly that he doesn't wanna put that vaccine in his body. I hope, I really sincerely hope he'll change his mind so that he, can get back in there and that uh, can he can vie for the biggest prizes in the game again, because it's a crucial year in his career. 
He turns 35 in May. Rafa turns 36 in June. They don't have forever. Rafa understands that. And I think Novak does too, but this is a, this is such an important time for him to, uh, to, to win the majors that he needs to win in, in the two or three prime years that he may have left. Yeah, me too, Steve. I agree. And, uh, glad, glad we could, uh, revisit this and, and wrap it up in, in a way that, uh, <laughs> I guess completes the loop on, on this 2022 Australian open, always a pleasure chatting with you about, about everything. And, uh, I look forward to, to doing it again after Roland Garros. It's a little bit of a break here. Um, but I'm sure, uh, we'll stay in touch as always. And it's, it's much appreciated. Gil, I enjoyed it. It was, it was, it, it, I'm glad we ended up getting such a compelling tournament. Yes. So, because obviously the whole focus was on Novak going in, but for us to end up with that final, and then of course, Ash Barty winning the women's becoming the first champion uh, Australian to win that title since 1978. It was, it was, it was good for tennis that we had those developments and that we ended up with two, you know, very worthy champions and particularly the, the Nadal win, uh, I think, inspired so many people worldwide. And then, of course, it brought the subject back to who's going to win the most majors. And Rafa's got 21 now. And Rafa joins Novak with winning at least two at all four majors. And it just brings it brings everybody back to that table of discussion. I'm grateful for that. Yeah, great words. Us as well. Sport um, ended up really... Uh showing itself well this year in, in Australia, even, you know, what it could have been with Novak at the event, you know, it, it does show, I think, and I would say this about anyone in the sport, you know, you, you subtract one player and rarely does that have an effect on a major championship and, and the, the overall product that that is. So well, Gil, it's been great fun. I enjoyed it. And I look forward again to, to June and our next discussion after, after Roland Garros. Absolutely. Sounds good. Thanks, Steve. Thank you. Our house is a mess. Come on in. I'm Amber Wallen, internet comedian, plant queen, and host of your new favorite podcast, Fly on the Wild. Okay, that's pretty presumptuous to assume that this is going to be their favorite podcast, by the way. Like, come on, Amber. Anyway, that wasp that you just heard interrupt me is my husband. And co-host, Benjamin Wallen, also a comedian, and I host people at our home. I have a great wine collection in my cellar. Well, you it's mean not a cellar. the mini fridge. It's a mini fridge. It's a mini yeah. fridge. New episodes of Fly on the Wallen drop every Wednesday. Listen in as we discuss relationships, books, and keeping our sweet baby kid alive while we make laughs on the internet. Subscribe to Fly on the Wallen wherever you get your podcasts.